The following sermon is brought to you by thepreachersvault.com, bringing old-time preaching to a new generation. Okay, Philippians chapter 2. If you're not already there, you can go ahead and get there. Um, I've told you, I don't know how many times, I guess, probably 30 by now. But Philippians chapter 2, at least the section of the passage that we're in right now, really begins itself back over in chapter 1 and verse 27. And that just has to do with the mindset, with the thought, with the processes that are going on. Of course, Paul writing by inspiration here, but nonetheless writing to a group of people that he was somewhat familiar with, a group of people that obviously he cared about because they obviously cared for him. And one of the things he needed to help them to understand, and in some cases to a, to a small extent probably, but maybe even larger than I imagine, is that they need to be closer as far as being unified, not only one another, but also with God. And so that's really what chapter 1, verse 27, through chapter 2 and verse 11 all have to do with. Of course, we presented that from several different perspectives. We'll just start reading in chapter 2 and verse 1. Uh, he says there, If there be any consolation in Christ, if any comfort in love, if any fellowship in the Spirit, if any of the bowels of mercy, fulfill you my joy that you may be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind. Now the way they're going to achieve that is by having the right attitude. He adds to that, verse 3, Let nothing be done in strife or in vain glory, but in lowliness of mind, letting each one other esteem the other rather or better than themselves. Then he says, Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. And he starts to give us what would be a prime example of someone who they would be familiar with, or at least heard of, if not actually met. By this time, remember, this letter is being written somewhere in the neighborhood of the 62 to 64-ish A.D., so it's highly likely that some of these people either directly crossed paths with Jesus or at least knew someone that had. So he gives them this example concerning Christ. He said, Let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form, that's the morphe, that is the exact duplicate inside and out, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal, and that means to be equal in every way with God, but made himself, that is Christ made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form, again, that is the idea that from the inside out, he had the form of a servant and was made in the likeness, and that's going to be similar to a word we see in just a moment, was made in the likeness of men, that is on the inside to the out, he was God. On the inside, to the out, to the core of himself, he was a servant. But yet on the outside, he appeared to be in the likeness of man. And then in verse 8, being found in the fashion, that's the schema, and that's like the schematic. If you were to draw out, this is what a man looks like. Obviously, we all look a little bit different in appearance. But in general, you could say, well, a man has two arms, two legs, one head, so forth is that. He had the schema of a man. On the outside, he looked exactly like that. He was one. And being found in the fashion of a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And as we were kind of beginning to wrap things up last week, we were commenting on the fact that when he humbled himself, he humbled himself all the way to the point 
that he was willing to die for those people. And there would be no greater service, and that's what is being discussed here, how his mind was set, how that we need to be like-minded as him, how that even though he was God, he was in the form of a man. There's no greater service or sacrifice is what it really was. He could have done, obviously, than to be willing to die, and particularly to die the violent death that he did. And of course, we didn't go over that as much and won't take the time now, but we all realize this. We've studied that over and over. Uh, maybe you've you know, read different commentaries, different people who commented on it. You've heard people preach, people teach. Maybe you've seen, and we have this at our access now, you've seen you know, movies and recreations of this, and it was obviously a violent, violent death, and obviously one that no one would have chosen uh, without they be willing to do it for a purpose, would have chosen to do and according to what we're seeing here, he laid himself down for that. He allowed that to happen, particularly, and it states, even the death of the cross. Now, I mentioned a few weeks ago, I think, that there's some possibility there that that emphasis is made there, even the death of the cross, not only because of how severe it was, but also in their minds at least, what that would have equaled to the Jews. Of course, they're looking back to Old Testament uh, scripture in Old Testament times, they're thinking probably about what we know as Deuteronomy 21 and verse, 30, uh, verse 23. And also in the book of Galatians, we find the same, cursed is every man that hangeth on a tree. And so maybe some of those Jewish leaders, some of those people who were so antagonistic and so you know, set in their mind that Jesus needed to be not only killed, but he needed to be killed on a cross were trying to equate in their mind that he would be in some way cursed, which in, in trying to discuss what that would mean in equality is just basically say his name would be wiped away. He'd be done away with. Anyone who tried to reference him from that point, as far as the Jewish mindset, uh, tried to bring him up, they would say, oh, well, no, no, no. He couldn't have been anybody or anything because his whole life was cursed. And he was done that way by being, by being quote, hanged on a tree. Now in Old Testament times that reference to being hanged on a tree probably meant more or less to be impaled on that tree. They would make a spike, it's just what it sounds like to impale them on a tree, but the whole purpose of it was not only to die a terrible death, but also and more so that they would be um, humiliated. And of course a lot of the part of the cross that Jesus went through and of anyone who died on a cross like that by crucifixion went through was part of it was just the humiliation of it. Christ being again, as I've referenced so many times, filled with humanity, yet filled with deity, was willing to be filled with humility, even to the point of being humiliated, because he was going to give that service to them that would be the prime example of unity. Now, in verse 9 is kind of where we really closed things off last week, or at least started to. Verse 9, Wherefore God hath highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name. That, or in order that, verse 10 adds, that at that name, whatever that name is, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of the things in heaven and the things of earth and under those things in the earth. And verse 11, and, and that every name or every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So it says right here that in spite of the fact that he was hanged on a cross, 
in spite of the fact that he gave himself to that death, in spite of the fact that he had been a servant to the people, and we saw, or at least mentioned, the, one of the primary visual examples, other than the cross that you could see, for Jesus doing that was what you find in the latter part of John chapter 13. He's there at his disciples' feet. He's washing their feet. And he tells us in that text, as he tells his disciples the same, the reason I'm doing this is because I want you to see that no one is, is so high, or we might say high and mighty, that they cannot humble themselves. They can't bring themselves to that humble state and be a servant. And I've known many times in my life, and this is not just, just church-related, obviously. More times than not, it's really more workplace-related, whatever. Uh, no one wants to play the second fiddle. Everyone wants to be the primary person who's in charge, who's taking, you know, taking charge, who's being noticed and recognized and given some kind of authority or attention for what they do, when that's not exactly at all what Jesus taught. Jesus taught us to be servants. Now, if every one of us, myself included, obviously, if I would serve others, as previous uh, text has said, if I would serve others and put myself, put the others as better than myself, that would just trickle down to the fact that we'd all be servants and the service that we do would all go to one to another and that in turn would have God look down and be pleased. And so that's what we need to be and ought to be looking for. But in contrast to that, verse 9 says, Wherefore, because of what's read above it, wherefore God hath highly exalted him. What does it mean to be exalted? To, to set apart, but to lift up. If someone is exalted in the minds of those who are exalting them, they're lifting them up. They're giving them some type of recognition as to how important they are. Uh, sometimes we do that with humans. Sometimes we do that with items around the house. You know, we might have a prized possession left to, left to us and, and, you know, from someone who's passed on, a, a grandmother, mother, something like that. And that item is extremely important to us. And I don't know that it applies itself as well as it did, but I can remember as a child, you know, being grandparents' houses and such others, I had fireplaces, the things that mattered the most, where did they end up? Right there above the fireplace on the mantel. Or right there in the bookcases beside it, whatever. That's the things that matter the most. Those treasures, those things that people appreciated, those things that people loved, whether it be a photograph or just some item, those things would be put in the forefront of a room. They'd be put to where everyone who came in would notice. And so this term is exactly the same as that, other than the fact that it expands itself to say that God highly exalted him. Now, who had exalted Christ prior to his crucifixion more than God? Now, the key to listening there might be more than God. You can do this right here, no one. Matter of fact, the way he ended up being crucified was because of the jealousy of the Jews and, and those around about it, was because of the fact that when he tried to just tell them the truth, and that is he was God, they committed to telling him he's a blasphemer and all other sorts of accusations go against him, and they did what they could to attempt to put him down. Now, outside of the disciples and, the, and those that came and heard him, and, you know, things started, I guess, to, you might say, to click with them. The majority of the people, at least the ones that showed up at the crucifixion scene, 
or the scene of the judgment before the crucifixion scene, maybe in Pilate's courtyard or what have you, the majority of those people, what was their idea? Put this man down. And so they tried to put him down. They tried to put him away. They tried to, you know, wipe his name from the pages of, of history. And God took that exact moment and used it to his advantage to highly exalt him. Now reading on what it says directly there. And wherefore God hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. Now I know last week as we were closing, I, I wasn't trying to read the whole thing nonetheless, but I did bring the little paper back uh, that, I, that I had last week. Hundreds of names that you'll find in Scripture that are references to God and or references, prophetic references, because most of these are found in the Old Testament, reference Jesus. And they reference how important He would be, each of these being, I would describe it as a puzzle piece that could have been put together by the Jews, that could have been put together by prophets and, and seemingly us, that actually in reality, these types of names, names like the anointed, uh, the beloved, the cornerstone, the day spring, the deliverer, the judge, the king of kings, and the mighty God. And the, these things here, these names come straight out of Scripture. What they really did in turn, if you study that through, and uh, I've really just kind of gone back over the last week and just dug and dug back and tried to look some of these names back up and say, okay, why was that said? What was it describing? And who was it written to? And what I came to know is these puzzle pieces, really just the names, give us a huge insight into the character of God. Now, Jesus is God then God is God is God, and by knowing Jesus, we know God. And by seeing just the characteristics that were given to Him, remember, it's, it's a little bit similar today, not nearly to the extent, but there's, as we would sing sometimes even, there's something about that name. And there's usually some significance to a name. Now, most of us, uh, we don't focus on it as much. I know the first time I supposedly learned what James meant or Juliana meant or Cameron meant, we were probably at a trade day or some fair. And, you know, somebody had a little table set up and they're selling little embroidery things or picture frames and it had the name and what the name meant. In Jesus' day, though, seemingly names were definitely meant it had some characteristic to them. Matter of fact, the way that I might prove that if I tried is the fact that how many numbers of times you'll read of someone and it'll say their name and it'll say what their name means. What's a good example of that? His name started with a B. Barnabas. Others, you could say the same. Jesus is yet another name. What did it say about the name of Jesus? I think that's kind of the primary focus of the text anyway, at least some of it. What did it say about Jesus? Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. The angel comes to Mary, and she tells Mary to do what? He shall be called Emmanuel, Jesus. Old Testament prophecies, Emmanuel. Why? Emmanuel, because he's God with us. That's the meaning of it. Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Guess what Jesus means? Jehovah saves. So there was significance to names. And here we have, out of all the names, and these are not necessarily all, but I just thought the list was neat because they're in alphabetical order and, you know, it just made it handy to see and to examine. But out of all the names of Jesus found in Scripture, the Bible says God specifically gave him a name that was above every other name. 
So what might that be? Well, the scriptures reveal to us really right here on the page in black and white what that applies to and how that is set up. Wherefore God hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. So whatever name he's given him is above every, you could imply every other name. Now before we read what that is, we crossed it just a minute ago, we scanned it. Before we examine that, verse 10 Let's think about a couple of other times that came up in my mind just really quickly today as I was looking at this again. A couple of other times when the name of Jesus was lifted up and when it was really not taken from J-E-S-U-S to being something more than that. Let's go back. I don't flip or flop much, but I do want to go back to a couple of these. First of all, very familiar text. Go back with me, if you would, to the book of Matthew. When you get there, go to Matthew um, uh, Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. Just scan down the page. As soon as you see it, you'll know exactly what we're about to say about it. Matthew chapter 16. Look, beginning in about verse 13. I'm just going to read that. We're going to read that together. Matthew 16, beginning in about verse 13. Here's what's happening. You'll know the account very quickly. And Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi and asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? What they, what's he asking them? What do they call me? What do they think about me, really? I mean, because really some of the things that's about to be mentioned here are actually pretty impressive. I mean, I'm, I'm James Edward Merle, called Jim, called Fred uh, by my mama, called Slim by, I mean, you uh, doesn't amount to nothing. But if someone got confused and said, well, we'll read on. If someone got confused and says, well, he must be John the Baptist. That's not a bad deal. Some say they aren't John the Baptist. Some Elias, that's Elijah, or Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. That's what people were saying. If they went out on the streets and went door to door or just, you know, just bumped into people on the streets and said, uh, who, who do you think? He is. Maybe he's in their presence, or maybe they describe him in some way. You know, the guy that was down speaking in the synagogue yesterday, or that healed that blind man, or whatever. Who do you think he is? These are some of the answers they gave. And again, they're not terrible answers. They're all honorable answers. Uh, they're all respectable answers. But the question is, are they right? No, they're not right. And so obviously the world needed some education on this. So Jesus turns it. He's like, okay, so... We got that. But then he asked this question. You all know what this phrase is about to be. And he saith unto them, meaning his disciples, whom say ye I am? Now Peter answers, but he didn't ask Peter, did he? He said, ye, you all, y'all. Who do y'all think that I am? Now whether or not anybody else vocalized it or not, Scripture doesn't record it, but one of the most impressive, and at the time, I mean time of writing, just looking at the New Testament in the order we have it even, we can understand this. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, you know, that. Time frame, time of writing. Peter is one of the first, at least the first recorded to say, well, uh, you, verse 16, Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Why didn't he say you're Jesus? Because out of all the things Jesus was called, 
That one was the most human. It was the most mortal. It, it was the most, uh, you know, flesh and blood type of name that was applied to him. Again, hundreds of names in Scripture that all reference to God slash and or Jesus. But out of those names, Jesus was the least significant. Now, not insignificant in what it meant, obviously. He shall save his people from their sins. Obviously, Jehovah saves. But least significant in what he would really be for the people. And Peter makes such a profound statement and knocks on the door so closely to what our text is back in Philippians chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, that he says, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. What is the idea of someone or some person being the Christ? How significant is that? What does Christ mean? Old Testament word would have been Messiah, anointed one. And so basically Peter's answer right now is not, I mean, what are you, crazy? You're Jesus. If you don't know your name, man, we need to, uh, we need to have a discussion. Are you? No, he didn't say that. He specified in light of what had just been stated by what the general public assumed, he specified and said, no, 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 he's more than these characters. He's the Christ, he's the Messiah, he's the anointed one, and then equated him with whom? Son of God. Now, was Jesus impressed with that answer? Next verse said he was. He, he gives that bit of information. The next verse says, And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona. Watch this now. For flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee. So where did Peter get his answer? Not from a neighbor, not from a co-worker, not, not, not from anybody he met on, on, on the lake. He said, flesh and blood didn't tell you this. Because why? Because flesh and blood didn't get it right. They don't know. They don't comprehend. They don't understand yet. He said, but flesh and blood is not revealed unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. So is his answer right? It has to be. He got his answer by some means from God himself. Now, does that mean that Peter was asleep one night and that still small voice slipped in and Peter's the only one? No, not, not likely, not at this time. Yes, these men eventually would be inspired. Yes, these men would eventually be able to do miracles and, and they would have some of the characteristics the Spirit would allow them to have through the power of our Lord. But at this point in time, when he tells him, You're, my father is delivering me, it's a good idea that, that Peter had followed uh, prophecy and listened to what Jesus had been doing and saying. Yes, sir. Yeah, he said, and to read it again, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. So he identified who he was. He said, you know, my father hadn't even revealed this to you. And of course, he goes so far as to, and this is often misunderstood, Bible students, we've kind of gotten down to understanding better, but he says, what, what you've just said, essentially, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed unto thee, verse 18. And I say unto thee, thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. What rock? The, the, the easiest way to understand it, that, that confession 
that bedrock statement of faith. Yeah, I know who you are. You are the Messiah, and even more than that, and as much as that, you're the Son of God. So is he still Jesus? He's Jesus the whole time. But Peter's statement here doesn't include that because Peter's statement here really goes beyond that. Now let's go to one other passage, and then we'll, we'll back away a little bit. Go to the book of John now. When you get there, go over to John chapter 20. John chapter 20. Now start, start scanning down a page to long about verse... Let's start back in uh, 26. Now we, we're, we've come through a period where Jesus already died according to John's account. He's already died. He's already came back and been in the presence of his disciples how many times? There's your cheat sheet. Twice. And of those times, the best we can figure, someone's been absent. Who was that? Thomas. And Thomas is a guy who, you know, we stand back 2,000 years removed and, you know, pop our suspenders and say, oh, Thomas, I mean, he's, he should have had more faith. No, no, no. Jesus is going to say something to him in a moment in our reading that says, you know, basically you should be able to have more faith, but he understands that he doesn't. And he understands that he has proof. So even though on one side of things, God says that we believe it ought to be true, God says that we believe it, we ought to still try to prove it with what God says. And so all Peter really does in this situation, not Peter, all uh, Thomas really does in the situation is ask for the proof. Verse 26, John chapter 20. And after eight days, again, his disciples were with him, and Thomas was with them. Then came Jesus, and the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace be unto you. And then saith he to Thomas, Reach hither thy finger, and behold my hands, and reach hither thy hand, and thrust it into my side, and be not faithless and believing. And Thomas said, what's Thomas say, verse 20? And Thomas said, My Lord, my God. What did Thomas not say? Jesus, it's you. Yes, Jesus was in some form. Now, to ask me to explain that, I, I wouldn't even try. But he was in some reincarnate form. Obviously had proven in some way that was a fleshly form because he's allowing them to touch flesh. Prior to this meeting, when he first came back in from the grave, even though he had warned Mary and a few others not to touch him, you know, that he basically not come to the state, you know, I don't know exactly all the explanation, but don't touch him, not ready for that. But eventually he lets this person, Thomas, touch him. He's eight with them, which in their minds... They, they thought someone was alive or dead based on whether or not they could eat. What happened to Lazarus? What was Lazarus able to do immediately after coming out of the grave? Same thing I would wish I could do. Get a good meal. And that was the seal of a deal. If he's eating, he's not a ghost. He's not a spirit. The assumptions could be made. So Jesus come. He's ate with them. He spent time with them. 
And now when Thomas reaches and does what he asks, he says again, And Thomas answered and said unto him, My Lord, my God. Now, go back to our text. And there are numerous other examples of similar accounts and similar situations. But in those two instances, Matthew's account of what Peter did, which was prior to his crucifixion, Peter said, Thou art the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God. Didn't care that he was Jesus. Didn't acknowledge it at least. Then we've got, after his resurrection, we've got Thomas coming in. Of course, remember, Peter was told that by God or understood it by God, not by man. Then we have Thomas coming in. Thomas is doubtful of who he is and if he even really exists. But upon getting confirmation of such, he says, My Lord and my God. If you want to put something outside of that to understand this even more, Peter and Thomas had something very much in common. And that is they were previous followers of Christ. Both of them had been with him. Both of them had been present. Both of them had been witness to his will, his word, and his wonders. But there's a character at the foot of the cross in the middle of those two. When he saw Jesus dying, and he saw the earth begin to quake and the skies begin to get dark, what did he say about it? He said, this was God. I mean, then we've got a soldier at the foot of the This was God. Okay. So what did God do for Jesus? Back to in our text. Wherefore God hath highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every name. Why is that? That at the name of Jesus, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow that are in heaven and that are in earth and that are under the earth. And that every tongue should confess, now here we have the name Jesus, that Jesus Christ is, what's the next word? Lord. Now to us, I understand, for me at least, I can't really speak for you, but to, to most of us maybe, or at least for me, maybe I'm just ignorant, Yes, there's significance to Peter's description of him as a Messiah. Yes, there's significance to Thomas's description of him as the Lord my God. There's tremendous significance to this phrase, which said specifically that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He's the Lord. What does the word Lord mean? It kind of varies just a little bit between the New and the Old Testament. The word Lord in the New Testament basically carries with the idea of someone who is in charge or takes charge. Who called Jesus Lord? I'll give you the clues. He's laying on the ground. Apparently, he's blinded. And he looks up and he says, Who art thou, Lord? A Saul. Now, when he said that, when he made that statement, whether or not he understood, I know he didn't completely understand how significant Jesus was. But he at least applied an appropriate title to him by asking him, Who art thou, Lord? Now, 
who are you? Are you Jesus? Are you like the others answered? Are you Elias or one of the prophets or John the Baptist? You know, are you any of that? He knew in the moment Jesus was in charge. The word there in the New Testament speak means the master. That's what Jesus had become and was becoming and should be to us. The master in charge of our lives. Sometimes people use the phrase, the Lord of my life. And, and I know we, as members of the Lord's church, sometimes we've heard that abused and misused and we kind of squirm in our pew. And, and if someone were to walk up to you and say, well, I'll tell you what I've done. I've made Jesus Christ the Lord of my life. That sounds a little fishy. Sounds a little fuzzy. But it also sounds biblical. Now, whether or not that's been abused by the denominational world or misused, it, it has. You know, I'm going to make Jesus Christ the Lord of my life. That statement has been so, so abused till it's uncomfortable. But 1 Peter 3.15 says these words, and this is King James speak. Sanctify the Lord your God in your hearts. And of course, be ready always give an answer. The reason hope is in you. Sanctify means set apart the Lord in your heart. Make God your Lord. That's the literal phrase. As a matter of fact, the ASV, the 1901 ASV says that. Make Christ Lord. And so I've said all of that, and that was 25 minutes to just think through this a little bit farther. Yes, the name of Jesus is absolutely significant. Can't deny it, can't turn from it, not trying to prove it wrong. But what made Jesus so significant is he incrementally, not that he changed, but his man's understanding, comprehension of who he was increased. When God gets to the pinnacle point of the crucifixion, God used the crucifixion, the most humiliating, awful death that could be, the one who was supposed to be cursed by it, he highly exalted him and gave him a name that is above every other name. The name specifically stated here, the name Jesus Christ, Jesus Messiah. And the statement that they're supposed to understand now, we, as, we are in this hindsight era, is that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The name that he was given, the name that was applied to him, which stands above every other name, is the fact that, yes, he was Jesus Christ, but he was revealed to be Lord. That name has been highly exalted. So we'll come back to this on next week. We've made all of a two-tenths of a verse progress, but that's a significant section of the text that I hope builds on some things we're going to see later. Thank you for your attention.